The answers to our biggest modern struggles lie within the resilience of our ancestors. Which ancestors may you ask? Those indigenous cultures who were in communion with Mother Earth. By returning to indigenous history, philosophies, and practices, we too can embody a contemporized version of what our ancestors taught us. Join us hand in hand, ancestor to ancestor, as we heal ourselves and the collective together. Hola, welcome to the Ancestors Alliance podcast. We are here with a such a beautiful guest. Earl Amin, who is the CEO, Adaptive Strategy Advisor, Mentor, Speaker, Future Author. You'll you have to wait for the next book, but it'll be amazing, I'm sure, when it comes out. And he has many different projects. Uh, the Gray Owl being the Gray Owl Company being the primary. Gray Owl Productions, because this man is creative. So he flows that creative juices, I'm sure, through that. Excalibur Metrics, love to know more about that. Fidelitas Opportunitis, I believe, is the name. Opportunity Platform. Okay, I, I added more us, us to it because it felt big. And then he has his nonprofit Donner House Foundation. So massive welcome, Earl Amin, to the Ancestors Alliance podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I'm pleased and honored. So I want to begin with bringing in your ancestors, bringing in your heritage, bringing the past of you towards this to this conversation. And if you can name for your for the listeners what your heritage is, that would also be helpful. I am an American of African descent. I know this because my family did a genealogical study and confirmed down to the name the person of English descent who gave my family its name. That person was James Whitaker, who was an English-born person. And Whitaker means wheat fields. So... That didn't mean anything to me, so I changed it. <laughs> and can you tell us more of what, what you change it to and what the meaning of your name, chosen name is? Certainly. I, I can only share that in truth by giving credit to my father for recognizing it and leading us into a journey of our genealogy, um, seeking to understand at, at the time there was a great movement um, to change your name and take and take on an X because our history was unknown. And that was insufficient for my father. He said, I'm not just going to change my name to an X just because. Let me find out what the truth is. And in doing so, determining that our familial name uh, as Whitaker uh, was an actual verifiable slave name, then we could make some decisions, make some choices about it. So I will never forget the day that my father came into our kitchen uh, for a family meeting, which we were prone to have, and announced that from this day forward, that as a basis, uh, based upon the results of the genealogical study, that he wanted to change his last name and invited us all to do so. That included his wife, our mother, uh, and each of my other three siblings, there are four of us total, to change our last name to the name that he would choose, the surname that he would choose, which turned out to be Amin, which is in fact Arabic, um, but it has meaning. And Amin means honest and trustworthy. Um, my mother, who chose to keep her marrying, um, as did my other three siblings, but I said, where goes my father go I? So I decided to take on the last name, Amin, uh, but also in the process to give myself middle name. My mother made me to keep my first name, Earl, which was her father's name, and which means noble. And I took on the additional middle name of Kai, Q-A apostrophe I-E, 
which is also Arabic, but it has meaning. And the meaning of it is leader. Because I had recognized since I was very, very young that that was who I am, what I am, a leader. So my name as a result today means noble, leader, honest, and trustworthy. I love how that story, it just all unfolded because you told me that before and I figured you, you know, one day you woke up and you decided that in your adulthood, but give me a little bit more of what year was that? Like, I kind of want to place myself in the historical moment of when your father came in. Yes. So I was uh, nine years old at the time and I'm presently 59 years old. So that was 50 years ago that that occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been in the uh, 70s. Um, yes, it was certainly before I graduated high school. So it would have been in the early 70s, 71. Um, and it was at a time when uh, nationalist pride in being what we were then called Negro transitioning to Black. Um, uh, and there was a fervor around identity. And at the time, um, every single reference to us as a people was one that was assigned by the system. Um, and so going from, and I will say it, uh, going from nigger to, to black to Negro to uh, African American, uh, all of these things were assignments um, within the system. Um, my father, again, to his credit, sought to gain as much of his own original identity in that system as was both plausible and possible at the time. So I remember that he went through the struggle of going to work, uh, wherein he was employed as an engineer. Uh, he was a brilliant man. Um, and uh, employed as an engineer of, of an entire uh, steel mill, the plant, and um, telling them that, hey, I've changed my name, and I will no longer be called Whitaker, I will be called Amin. And uh, there was a lot of rancor around that, but he was persistent. He understood the why of it and communicated the why of it, and um, people got over it. Um, uh, But also, as a young child, uh, being not only inspirationally obedient, but actually obedient to the will of my parents, uh, when we were attending a Catholic school at the time, and such a change in the name to something that had a negative perception um, could have cost me my education. So we were disallowed to ever speak about it in school and uh, because that system would have summarily rejected all of us. Because so it was Arabic. Because it was Arabic, yes. And so the perceptions at that time were, by comparison, mild as compared to, to today and, and how, um, how often I get, I get the question, you know, are you, are you Muslim? And my answer is, I'm not Muslim. However, I did practice Islam and understand it empirically. But no, I'm not a practicing Muslim. Uh, I am a believer in the message of Jesus Christ. However, I am not religious. I am deeply spiritual. Um, And I find that the message that was delivered, uh, however it came to me, has proven to be something that I've been able to rely upon and place all of the experience and the wisdom that I've accumulated. Uh, it has not failed to support that. So, um, um, and as to my ancestry, uh, it wasn't strictly uh, African. I'm also a Blackfoot Indian. And uh, my great-grandmother, uh, Isola, uh, was very clearly uh, a Blackfoot Indian. The hair, the high cheekbones, the, the deepness of, of her mel- melanin uh, and her coloration. Um, 
And uh, so I have dual heritage in that regard. Um, my environment was was what at that time would have been called middle class. And uh, my father did well. My mother uh, was uh, had no college degree, but she was simply a, a genius. And at the time, you could go in and take a test, you know. And uh, so she took a test uh, with uh, the city to become the head of child protective services uh, over many other PhDs and so forth, uh, who then came under her her uh, authority. But she was just a brilliant woman. She could read something, and and she was as close to as I could understand. Uh, autodidact and uh, she could just read something she understood it so our household was mostly very cerebral very loving um, you know we played as children we weren't you know we didn't have to sit in a corner but we took classes on every other Saturday and we learned how to knit and to sew and to darn and to uh, do f- cooking and kitchen work as well as bricklaying and welding and, and uh, mathematics. Um, so we were both schooled and homeschooled. Hmm. So uh, that set us up to on a pathway to make some pretty interesting choices. Yeah. There's a lot there. And I just appreciate the story of hearing a family that, raise such a beautiful person and also the appreciation and the balance of like the masculine and the feminine because you really learned I mean you a boy learned to knit and sew that's not common and look I'm sure you know your wife really appreciates that she does indeed (laughs) she most certainly does paid off it paid off yeah definitely set you apart from the back um (laughs) <laughs> so I appreciate that there was this balance of like masculine and feminine education, but also thank you for naming your grandmother and your mother in this conversation, because I feel like it's important to, to bring forward that, that those roots, that strength, that lineage, uh, to conversations like this and to our lives. Indeed. And that's of course what we're all about. Indeed. Happy to do so. I want to touch on two things, um, three, actually. And one of them is what I'm hearing also, because this this was the 70s, right? And I feel like with millennials, there's almost um, maybe a disconnection. I don't know if that's the right word. But it's almost like we assume that social justice has just progressed, right? Like the state of social welfare is like this, you know, going up on a graph and every year we get better and more people are better off than the last year and da, 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 da. So if you can speak to a little bit about this progression and the 70s versus 2021 and, you know, there was a time that you said where there was this reconciliation of like, wait a second, what my identity is not what the institutions are telling me. And obviously that's happening again. And that's not something new, but we feel like it's new and would love for you to talk on that. Okay. We'd be happy to do so. In the, I was born in 61. So, uh, Vietnam war, was the thing that was most on the minds of many people. And its subsequent impact led to uh, changes, even tumultuous changes in society um, here in the United States. And it was not uncommon to see people in unrest, and not just within my particular community, uh, but within communities across America. Uh, which is why sometimes I find it absurd that we think that uh, people uh, gather together to express their their uh, disdain or their dissatisfaction is something worthy of killing them over. But uh, this happened quite regularly in the 60s and early 70s. And 
as uh, as prosperity became more accessible uh, in the 70s, leading to the robust prosperity of the 80s. Um, also, as a person of my particular pigmentary persuasion and my social background, um, the opportunity opportunities to advance became more prevalent. Um, and but it was never at any point in time um, an opportunity to forget that just at that time in the 70s, perhaps two generations ago, there were still people that were alive that had been slaves, human beings that had been owned by another. I remember meeting my great, great, great grandmother who was at the time, I believe, 101 in Memphis, Tennessee, living in a shotgun house. And, uh, and she had been a slave. She had known the experience of being owned by someone and her parents owned by someone. It took me decades to really come to terms with that and what it meant to me. Um, but the system that that came about as a result of the evolution of of my people in this country and other peoples in this country it was simply a modification of the system which is actually called racism anything that is ism speaks to a system of whatever the word is so the system of race um, had to undergo a metamorphosis uh, because now uh, the civil rights movement had been passed. So it became a regulatory issue. So there were certain things that I could not be told I simply cannot do. I could be told, however, I could do them, but still within the system be disallowed from achieving this thing. So uh, within the system of race, um, I became aware by choice that I am not a party to that system. That, um, again, just one of the benefits of how I was uh, internally educated, I, that you, you can't throw words at me and expect me to be intimidated by the words. I seek out the meaning. So um, um, I have never, to be quite honest with you, ever been to my face called a nigger, ever. And I have been places wherein that term was utilized very freely. I believe that is not because, um, not only because I'm not, and I understand the history of the term and that it applies to a state of mind, not a physiology, um, but also because I just don't, believe myself that way. There's nothing in me that that believes in that, so I don't express that. Um, but over the time since the 70s uh, and the necessity of tapping into this abundant resource that are now this other set of peoples um, in our economic uh, conglomerate, um, how do we take full advantage and so <clears throat> during that time in the 70s and 80s, you know, there were many groups of peoples that were fighting for recognition and what they call equality. Uh, I have never sought equality. Uh, I don't believe that it's a useful application of terminology because equality doesn't actually exist in the relational paradigm. Um, what does exist, however, is balance. Um, and by way of example, uh, when I met my wife, I told her, if you're seeking to be equal to me, then we should stop now. Um, but if you're seeking to be in balance with me, you will find yourself more equal than ever you thought imaginable. Um, and so once we came to both understand that in context, we're not two people who are trying to be equal to one another <laughs> because we simply can't be because of the constancy of change.
change prevents equality from being pursuable in the dynamic, in the ever-changing dynamic of relationship. And that exists not only between one person and another, but between members of a group, between uh, groups, between uh, communities, between societies, uh, between organizations, between nations. It is the pursuit of equality that tends to drive the mechanism of conflict. And so therefore, terminology and language becomes applied that is resplendent with terms like difference, like diversity. You know, nowadays we, we see so much people who are now assigned roles of the director or the chief diversity and inclusion or an entire now a spectrum called DNI, diversity and inclusion. Well, I think that that's deceptive and useless uh, because you've got it backwards. And so as long as you're pursuing diversity first, then inclusion trails somewhere in the background. But if you're really looking to make impact, then you have to pursue inclusion. Because once you pursue inclusion, diversity is the byproduct of that. Diversity happens as a result of inclusion, not before that. You can limit inclusion. You can control inclusion. You can call it inclusion and never practice it by saying we will pursue creating environments where diversity is the objective. Yeah, that's just, that's the system talking. But when you say that we shall pursue inclusion, then you suddenly should find a three-letter word being applied quite often. Something that can just change the dynamic of our perception of a thing so rapidly and so impactfully. For instance, black matters, black lives matter. Okay. Well, when I say black lives matter, that doesn't inform you that, uh, that, uh, Hispanic lives matter, Asian lives matter, German lives matter. It doesn't inform you of that. It's just saying that, hey, black lives matter. When one three-letter word applied will invite and include black lives matter too. It simply solves the issue Mm. and reminds you that you are included in the mattering. So imagine the conversation that says, hey, you know, historically and based on evidence, this particular group of people have been have been uh, misused, abused, are the victims of this, that and the other. And we want to remind you that black lives matter, too. Now you can follow that up with let's all let's let us all who matter come together and create and participate in the creation of a solution that benefits all who are included. Mm. Three letters. You've told me before, but I want to point out that words are important to you. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) And I see in that illustration, wow. You know, I, I hear that and I agree with it and I nod my head and I'm like, yeah, yeah, words. Yeah, of course. And I'm also a very fluid person and also like flexibility and to kind of sometimes splatter, I guess, you know, like a Jackson Pollock. I like my conversation to sometimes be a little bit um, chaotic, but is that serving me? I don't know. I don't know all the time. Um, (laughs) He's shaking his head. He's about to shake his head. (laughs) I'll tell you that it can absolutely serve you. Chaos is simply multiple uh, multiple processes happening at one time. If you can recognize the process in chaos, then you become master of it. Mm. Mm. Love it. Either way, I hear your breath, your intention with your words. And before we had this conversation, you led us in breath and you also instructed how there is a sweet spot in the middle of the breath. And that is where creation is. And where I'm going with that is clearly 
you I'm, I get like little glimpses of your life, like as you're speaking, like glimpses of your relationship with your wife, that that love. Oh, my God. Like it makes me tearful to, to just have that glimpse. It's beautiful. So I'm if you can touch on breath in that middle space of creation and how you created and blossomed a new world for yourself out of this, you know, Catholic schoolboy experience, that would be so lovely. Sure. The world, the system that we live in, respective to our sociological uh, environments, respective to our cultures, will teach us how to live within a limited space, within a limited mindset, within a limited way of being, interpreting, responding, reacting to stimuli. It is my learned belief, and I can I never speak to what I have not actually experienced. It is my experience that I am my world. So my domain is my dominion and therefore my kingdom. My king dominion. I'm the ruler of my domain. And the same for a queendom. Ruler, queen of your domain. And so within that space, it is I who determine who I am. I utilize uh, a system called the list of eight. Who, what, where, when, why, how, how long, how much. Who, what, where, when, <laughs> why, how, how long, and how much. Uh, the list of eight. And in that, uh, I can identify and work through any process for any circumstance. And in my domain, uh, there is no circumstance that is greater than myself. Two words, myself. Um. And, and so in that, in that beingness, in that understanding, um, I get to choose who I am, what my identity is relative to any circumstance. My past is never my identity. It is only a point of reference. I don't, I've almost completely stopped using the word history because it is an assigned term as well. Um, and it's gender assigned. Um, but I will use reference. So I think of my past as a library full of individual stories of choices and results. So I may go back and reflect on a particular story that involved a choice that I made relative to a circumstance and the outcome due to that choice, but it is not who I am now because change is constant. Now, either we change up and we face our flower towards the sun that feeds us, or we face our flower towards the ground and we do not receive the rain. The bee does not, does not light upon us and the sun does not shine upon us. Um, we can become a weed. <laughs> But it's not because circumstances have made us so. It's because our choices have. And the more aware that we become of choice in this now, in what I call the breath, in the space of a breath, as you take everything in decidedly, I take in my worry, my concern, my doubt, my hatred, my dislike, whatever it is, I take in my love, I take in my like, I take in my friendships, I take in everything as I am inhaling it all into my me, my I am. And once I have filled myself with it, I pause. And the pause is so significant because it is where you take control of it all. It is where you say, yield to my will. And in the exhale, I have decided, and decided is, is a word that comes from the Latin that means uh, 
to cut away from. I have cut away from every other option. So even if I am annoyed with someone, bothered by someone, I don't like what he said. I don't like what she said. I don't like how that turned out. I don't like this. I don't like that. I wish I had this, blah, 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 blah. I am peace. I am love. My wife and I practice this actively. So if I'm doing something and maybe she thinks I'm not hearing her or I'm not understanding her, I have witnessed her take a breath. She doesn't have to announce it. Hold on. I got to take a breath. She just takes a breath. And in that moment, cuts away from everything that does not fulfill, everything that does not feed, everything that does not nurture, everything that does not grow us. Let that go. And on that exhale, what comes out of the mouth comes from love. And it might be spoken as, you know, I'm not certain if you're understanding what I'm saying. So let's focus on our intention on being clear with one another. Okay. That's not putting all of this chaos in between us and we've got to figure out and interpret what you actually mean. It's removing all of that through choice, through choosing, setting it aside so that we can see one another clearly as we intend ourselves to be, to be heard, to be experienced. And in that moment, every single time we become stronger in our love for one another. And this works not only in the intimacy of matrimony, it works in any relationship, whether it's in the office, whether it's someone that you just met and do not know, whether it's with a friend or whether it's in the moment where you're protesting for the right to exist, for the right to breathe, for the right to be treated uh, with fairness, the breath can be utilized. And you know when that moment is. Anyone hearing me now will know that they have those moments where you go, ah, they just feel it ball up within you. Well, that is the moment. That's the focus. That's the, the moment that you can be in the now and where you are capable of creating can now be applied. And you can take all that vehemence, all of that pain, all of that anger, and you think that it has value. And that no, this person should know and feel my anger, my rage, my hurt, my pain. But they're not. They're only going to feel the pain, the hurt, the anger that you're causing them. And so you just keep batting it back and forth. But this is what, what, what uh, Mahatma Gandhi meant when he said, be the change you want to see in the world. And being that change takes this, that much time. And so in the breath, the apex, at the moment that you have taken all of the world in, you can grasp it, make a decision about it, and decide, cut away from everything else to deliver who and what you actually are. And sometimes, yet and still, we fail. And what comes out of our mouth is a dagger. Well, that's what it's also, I know, being someone who has a strong presence, that it's so important to be conscious of my actions and my words, because that dagger can be very sharp. Mm -hmm. Indeed, very much so. And not everything recovers. Exactly. By dagger, by daggers. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a responsibility if you if you really have a the ability to to create in such a um, a way. Mm -hmm. I know that you've traveled a lot in your life. And I feel that maybe the first times this breath concept came to you was during your travels, probably not. I mean, it's probably been a part of you since day one and you just, that was ignited, but maybe you can speak a little bit to your travels and coming to, to this. I became applicably aware of it, uh, sitting amongst some plants on a beach in, uh, in the Philippines, in fact. I don't even remember the name of the island, but in order to get to it, we traveled by pontoon boat. 
and and the locals there had created a meal that was uh, came from uh, crabs that they I watched them go and pull them out of the out of the ocean. They took leaves off of a tree that was a bush that was behind me. Um, these small little they looked like small tomatoes. And they cooked this meal comprised of all of these things. And it was just the most delicious meal. I felt like it was, it was a multi-dimensional feeding. I felt my mind felt my body fed, my spirit fed, and uh, I couldn't stop eating it. <laughs> and uh, to the point where I was embarrassing myself, it was so delicious on every level. And after that, that meal and, and the subsequent meeting, I had an opportunity to walk out and stand in the field and the sun was going down and I sat there and I knew this. I knew that if I took my last breath right now, I will have lived a fulfilling life. I'm ready to go. When I let go of the world, let go of my existence, and dare I say, enlightenment was achieved. And I came to understand that I remake my world one intentional breath at a time. And thus was born the concept of the breath. And uh, ever since then, I have become, according to those who have interacted with me, I have become peace. People, I'm a, if you can't tell what I'm going to very large, uh, muscled football player kind of kind of guy, and with my deep voice, um, I can be quite intimidating, uh, whether I intend to or not. But it is in, until you speak with me that the suddenness of realization, and I can sometimes see it in the eyes of another person, that I am not death <laughs> come to take them. I'm actually love, actually peace. I'm actually best of intention. So that was when it when it happened on the, on an on an island on the beach in the Philippines. Mm. That was twenty plus years ago. I love that you were alone in this memory, and you know, it. I feel like that that moment, that picture is is why we're here. That's to eat the delicious food of this earth, to to just look at how beautiful the sky is and breathe. Breathe. Yeah. To be intentional in one's breath, even as one goes about one's day, is the beginning of the mastery of life. To understand in the breath that the difference, the distinction between fear and awe there are two different things allows fear to become a tool not a master fear is designed only to alert to notify that we need to give attention to some stimulus something that is around us um, not just the run Oftentimes, with regard to animals, it's stated that they have a fight-or-flight reaction. Well, that's incomplete. It's really feed, freeze, fight, or flight. And the freeze means the pausing, the pausing to assess and determine everything that is around me. And in that pausing, we're asking one question. Is it true? I heard something. Is that danger? Is someone out to harm me? I could just react to it. That every time I hear a noise, and it's sometimes coming to get me, and we all know people like that. Or pause, observe, determine. Okay, this is not intended to harm me. And if it is, I can choose to fight or to flee, but always first. If you ever watch it, watch nature shows, you see animals, the first thing they do is pause, mm. then determine 
Do they fight or do they flee? How did we get so far off? <laughs> like, like really, like this is the the teaching that has been thousands, actual thousands of years. Yeah. You know, so, like think of Buddha, think of our, some of the oldest teachings. Yeah. You know, and and then it's like, well, and then in twenty twenty one, you know, from being so far off from this point, the oftentimes what we're alerted and then because our bodies are ancient and we are animals yeah. newsflash yes we we it's harder to determine because we live in a world of illusions like i we're almost in a house of mirrors which i don't even know i don't know how to even <laughs> contemplate <laughs> it all but yeah what would you say what is your response or your gut feeling or what you're channeling about this like ancient one message that we're still trying to wrap our heads around. And maybe that's the problem. We're wrapping our heads around it. Well, yes. What we are still trying to wrap our heads around and the reason that we're still trying to wrap our heads around it and not having done so is because of change. And that if you do not identify the constant in change, then you can be lost in the change. So you have people who, every time something new comes out, I got to have it. Every time something new comes out, I got to have it. But you also have people that say, well, something new has come out. I'm going to wait and see how it how it lands and then you have people that say well something new has come out but i have what i have and don't fix what ain't broke so they might have uh for instance an iphone 4 well i can still make phone calls on it it still works for me so all of that, when you look deeply into it, is we're still trying to understand what it means to be human. And, and the, here's the funny thing. Once you get it, you're going to giggle because it's so uncomplicated. It is so simple. It is elegant. It is beautiful. And it is right in front of you in the very word human. H-U, humus, meaning earth. Man, not meaning gender, but meaning mind. So we are all earth-minded. And once I realized that, it became so much less complicated. Then I, I came to realize that everything else is external stimuli coming to me waiting for me to make a decision about it, to make a choice about it. So where do I ground my choices? I ground my choices in my humanity. In my humanity, upon which I build my identity. And my humanity says that I must be in regard to everything that exists around me. Everything that feeds me, everything that covers, protects, provides for me, have to be in consideration of that. Now, you can try to use terms like, oh, he's a tree hugger, or he's one of those hippies, and you would be ever so wrong, because I am not a pacifist. I will engage in violence, but what I am is a pacifist. I am a pacifist. I will seek peace. For as long as I can, in order to not engage in violence, but I am not incapable of it, there is a difference. And in that, I found great balance. That I'm not the guy that's going to be out trying to find somebody to beat up because they think that, you know, they think differently from the way that I think, feel differently from the way that I feel. No. I'm going to honor your, your, your perspective, honor your perception. But to the extent that it impacts, that you make choices that impact me, many of those choices are going to be like, 
an egg on Teflon. Okay. All right. I'll engage it. We'll, we'll cook it up and I'll listen to it and I'll know what it is. And, you know, uh, I'll know who you are, but it's not going to stick to me and become who I am. But I will be able to recognize you and you will be able to recognize me. It's also fun when you can make things taste delicious too, right? Yes. Some bullshit you can make. Mm, Now it tastes good. (laughs) Indeed. Absolutely. And we all have that, have that capability, you know, but we're, we're just so afraid to, to take a stand on who we can yet become. Uh, I love practice that was given to me uh, by my wife before she was my wife. And she came to recognize uh, um, my spirit. And it says, I am become. I am, in fact, I have it right here. Wow. I am become. She gave this to me because of conversations that we used to have. And they were never about, you know, I could tell her about bad things that happened to me, harmful things, hurtful things, people that hurt me or betrayed me or whatever, but never in a way that I am those things. I am, I would say to her, constantly becoming. So what I be comes. Become is actually two words. So come be. Come be at peace with me. Come be love with me. And love being not romantic. Love is actually the conscious commitment to be willing to act. So the love that my wife and share, my wife and I share, um, is anchored in this understanding. Because if you simply base love on romantic, then it won't last very long. (laughs) Because there will be days when more is needed. More is needed. But when you understand that it is a commitment that I've made to be willing to do, to act, then the proof of it is this. I invite anyone, anyone in the world to tell me a story about a moment in which you felt that you were loved. Any any story about any time, anywhere. And every single person will tell you a story about what someone did. It is always going to be a story of an action. Love is that. My mother said, love is something that you do. And so I learned to love by my action, by my willingness to perform, by my willingness to do. And I know when I don't love, but I'm not being loving. Sometimes it's an unreasonable unwillingness to act just because I don't like you. Yeah. Not saying that that's right or wrong, but that's the reality of our humanity. Yeah. So it just becomes so uncomplicated when we understand the existential root that human uh, being, being again, is the action. Being mindful of where we come from. We come from the earth. We are returned to the earth. Ash to ashes, dust to dust. It's mm. really it's simple. And it will allow you to seek out understanding. Understanding not by statement, but understanding by inquiry. So not just you're wrong. No, that's not true. Well, help me to understand your point of view. Help me understand your perspective. Help me understand your story, your journey that brought you here. And oftentimes we will find that there is very little difference 
between that person and I. There was only distinction. Hmm. When you said become and changed it around, and I don't remember the exact way you said it, but come be, I, I just, I felt it. I really felt it and, and got emotional and getting emotional now. And that is the power of words. <laughs> you just said it. You know, it, it really is. What I hear, and this will be our final uh, segment, our final topic. And it's, I almost, the, I see it physically. Like there's this, um, I'm doing like a hand motion uh, for the listeners uh, who can't see, but it's like, um, I see and hear the resilience of your lineage. Like I hear and feel something that is beyond just you. Like it is so beyond you and it's coming through and it's something that's always been there. And it is what drove you to these points because certain people are drawn to, to different lights, to different paths. And I do believe that is part of your, your ancestors and part of that resilience in your body, in your DNA. There is a resilience that I hear and a strength yes. and an intention yes. that is beyond you. A dream from much before you. And I would love for you to speak to what, what were those intentions? What were those dreams that, that brought you here from your ancestors? Like, what were they feeling? What were they praying for? What were they beating their drums for? That literally is why you were drawn to these different places, to around the world, to now teaching about breath, to mentoring leaders. Well, it started uh, for myself uh, very, very young, um, before I could understand what I was being and therefore what I would come to be. Um, I was a listener. I was a listener. I can remember rather vividly um, having conversations when I was in the seventh and eighth grade. Uh, I was actually that guy that you came to at the start of each year and said, I like that girl over there. I want to get to know her. Or, hey, I want to be with, with that group over there. And uh, I would charge for it. <laughs> like, okay, great. No problem. And I would. Why didn't oh. I know that? Why didn't I know that? I was always the therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I surely did. I would charge to make connections. Wait, uh, how much would you charge? Uh, it depended upon the complexity uh, of creating that connection. So if it felt simple to me, I might charge $5, which in the seventh and eighth grade was still a, an amount, um, but up to $15. And, uh, you know, I, I've always... Not bad, not bad. I've always welcomed money into my life. So uh, but always for the delivery of value. Uh, but it was uh, very young that I became aware of my presence in the world and the impact of my presence and that I could at times draw upon a knowingness that I just knew, man, this came, this is something that came through me. It did not come from me. And things that I remember my mother telling me, that I that you talked to Miss So and So over here, and you said this. Did you say that to her? I said, yes, yeah. Good. Well, tell me why did you say that, and how did you know to say that? I just told her the truth, and that's what what came out. And uh, I have uh, a flooding of memories around that now, but that it was always. Uh, a part of me who was in me, like we were talking about the, the born in ability of leadership uh, can be born into some people. And not all of us realize it, not all of us accept it, not all of us allow it to manifest and become. But I did. And 
Uh, and there's a price that we pay for everything. Everything is cause and effect. And I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, sitting with my father at the kitchen table one day and we started talking about uh, physics. And, and, we, and he took me on a journey into the kitchen table and we talked about molecules and, and we talked about subatomic particles and, and we went deeper and deeper into the table and he took me on a journey to realize that space isn't necessarily larger than myself, that space can be smaller than myself because the the, the, the more we went into the molecular structure of the table, there was only space, more and more space to be found. And that just blew my mind. And I, I, I just couldn't think normally since then. And I decided I was going to study everything. And for three years, I carried around a, a, an anatomy book, a uh, physical anatomy book. And I learned about parts of the body. I learned the, the, the distinctions between the, the female body and the male body and, and, uh, and just absorbed. I read the dictionary when I was nine and 11, the Oxford unabridged dictionary. My father showed me how to read it from A to Z. And, uh, so by the time I was 12, 13, nobody could understand what I was, what I was saying, you know, cause I was, using words that weren't in the common dis discourse. But all of that helped me to understand uh, the uniqueness of the human being. And not that I was myself beyond human, but that there was no limit to the extraordinary, the extra beyond ordinary that I could choose to be. So that meant um, quite a number of challenges for me, um, being that I had uh, I could absorb information, um, I could absorb truth more quickly uh, than than my peers and, and my age group. Uh, so, as we mentioned earlier, that when you reach a level of leadership, whether it is positionally or just within yourself the first thing that happens is isolation. And it is isolation that causes a disruption to the normal flow of integration into the rest of society. So, you know, the really smart people, they're always kind of quirky and, and you know, and they're off here doing this and they hang around with weird people. And it's really not true at all. It's that, it's that because we have understanding or can get to understanding um, more rapidly, um, it can look like, look like that we are separating ourselves from one another. And sometimes we're waiting for people to catch up. And sometimes we slow ourselves down to the pain because we simply want to be part of the group that is traveling in the same direction at the same speed. Um, and so I'm no different. I had to go through all of that. But I think the distinction in my journey was that I had a level of awareness that I was undergoing this process. And so when I encountered the inevitable pain, I dealt with it as if it were something outside of me. I gave it a name. And I believe that if I name it, then I am the master of it. But if I allow it to name me, then it is the master of me. And that was a key component because of my experiences. Had I not come to that understanding applicably, I would have been destroyed by it. I might have been an alcoholic or a drug addict or abusive to myself in some other way or abusive of others. But instead, I was isolated. Everything. I just went into myself because I sought to understand what it was that I was uh, that I had become a conduit for. Like, uh, I had a job uh, one time. <laughs> I was a plasmapheresis. I was a phlebotomist. 
in a plasmapheresis center. And I was so accurate at this that the manager of that entire business every morning uh, at 8 to 8.30 a.m., I would be allowed to go into an office and anybody who wanted to speak with me could come in and speak with me at that time because I just had no block between myself and 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 an internal intimate connection of that human being in front of me at that time. So people would come to me and share with me this all kinds of stuff. And um and the only reason that that did not continue was because I left the job. You know. But uh so it's just always been within me to uh, not allow myself to be against, to be uh, closed, to have that isolation cause me to be jaded against humanity. Um, I took every moment of pain, of betrayal, of hurt, of upset as an opportunity to reflect referentially, not I, not from an identity standpoint, um, but referentially, who was I being in that moment? What am I responsible for, accountable to, and what do I own in it? The rest of it didn't belong to me. Let it go. Let it go. And that was, I believe, what allowed me to survive being so extra beyond ordinary in my experience. I would like to ask you now then, what allows you to thrive? Oof, that's a good question. What allows me to thrive is, is the knowing, as I've said, that there is no circumstance that is greater than I am that I am the one who gives name to my circumstance. Therefore, if I am to believe that, that we exist to grow, then what is there that can disallow my growth if I first do not allow it? So... People, no one can take anything from me. I cannot take anything from anyone else. I have to give it away freely. I have to um, throw it away, devalue it. So what allows me to thrive, and interestingly, this one particular question I have not given a, a lot of thought to, um, because I'm in a constancy of thriving. Um, what allows me to thrive is gratitude. It is gratitude for every pain, gratitude for every joy. Um, I was speaking with a CEO, uh, day before yesterday and, um, and I asked a particular question, which when I asked this question, um, 99.987 percent of the people I've asked this question to just cognitive dissonance because they think that it's one question but it's really another. And that question is what do you have that you wish you didn't? What the brain wants to think I asked is what do you need? <laughs> people tend to answer that question until they realize well that's not what he asked what do you have that you wish you did not? Because it forces you to think, forces you to go inside and to decide, to cut away, to separate, and to identify something within you that you do not want. And that's sometimes hard for people to do. So I thrive based on gratitude. Is there something that you, you wish you did not have? Uh, 
my answer now is nothing because of gratitude is because I'm grateful for every pain that I have had, every pain that I experience in my now, every pain that I will experience because they're all there to inform me. And from that information, I can choose to grow and to be fed by it. So my answer now, and out of the thousand plus people that I've asked this question to around the world, only three of three of them, including myself, have answered nothing. Because we think that we have to say something. But there has to be a thing. Mm. And sometimes there is. Thank you. This conversation was very healing. And I know that if any listener and myself really hear, digest what you're saying, there can be some real impact in our lives. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your very introspective questions. And thank you for your listening. Thank you for tuning into this conversation and joining hand in hand, ancestor to ancestor, as we heal ourselves and the collective together through these conversations. Please rate, subscribe, and share this episode with anyone you feel is open to answering some of our biggest modern struggles with contemporized ancient wisdom. Until next time.